It's an honor. It's a, a privilege to be invited to, to come and to share a little bit with you. And uh, I want to thank all of those that were responsible. Thank you, Pastor, for uh, allowing me to step behind the, the pulpit here and share with you. Well, um, let's, let's do this before we go any further. <clears throat> I want to pray, and I want to just ask the Father to be with us here today as we talk about his word so that he would open up our hearts and our ears to hear not what a person has to say, but what the Spirit of God has to say. Amen? So our Father in heaven, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we do thank you, Father. We are grateful for the opportunity to, to be here with your people, to assemble together in the name of the Messiah. We ask, Father, that you, uh, as you have already made it obvious that you are here with your people. We pray, Father, that you will now guide and direct uh, our words, open our hearts and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to his people at this day and this time. Father, we did not come to gather information. We came here seeking revelation, and we realize that it does not come by man, but it comes by the Spirit of God who searches out, yes, all the deep things of God. And so impart unto us today those things that you would to each and every individual, every family, and this fellowship, this community. And we pray, Father, that you would give me the clarity of mind to disseminate the things that you placed upon my heart in a way that brings glory and honor to the name of of the Messiah. And we pray these things in his name. Amen and amen. Well, very quickly, I'm, um, I would not classify myself as a preacher. I, I consider myself more of a teacher. And so that's, that's what I'm going to try to do this morning. And I am going to try to give you about two hours worth of information in about the next 30 minutes. So listen up. All right. I'm a person that believes that the Bible is a prophetic book from cover to cover. When we go to look at prophecy, most of the time, or a lot of the time, I should say, when we're going to study prophecy, people will go to the book of Revelation, or then they'll go to the book of Daniel and a few other books. And how many of you have ever been part of a Bible study focusing on the book of Revelation and the prophetic element of that, and when you got through that Bible study, you had all the answers to what's going to happen at the end time? Actually, for me, it was I had more questions than when I started out. Now, part of, that, <clears throat> part of the problem there is this, that being a, quote-unquote, New Testament people, we sometimes forget that there is this thing called the, quote-unquote, Old Testament. And you see, God in the Old Testament in Isaiah 46, verses 8, 9, and 10 said this, and I'll paraphrase, I'm God, and here's how I'll prove it. Because I'm the only one who can declare the end to you by declaring the beginning to you. Here's what he means. He doesn't predict the end from the beginning. He tells us the end when he tells us the beginning. Ecclesiastes 3 puts it this way. If you want to understand what's going on today or if you want to understand what's going to happen tomorrow, what you need to do is go back and understand what has already been because the Creator causes those patterns of history to repeat, these cycles. Now, I'm not here to talk about prophecy in the sense of who the Antichrist is, when the tribulation begins, and all those things because, frankly, the essence of prophecy is not who the Antichrist is. The essence of prophecy is who the Christ is. The testimony of the Messiah is the spirit of prophecy. And all these things that are prophetic in the word are ultimately to guide and lead us to 
know who he is and to know who we are in him. Because frankly, everything he is, because he's the head of the body, everything that affects or pertains to the head, I should put it that way, everything that pertains to the head should disseminate through and affect the entire body. It should guide the body. So let me put it this way. Everything he is, that's what we're supposed to be. For instance, he is the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But those who keep his commandments, those who have the testimony of the Messiah, are called in Revelation chapter 12, the remnant of her seed. In other words, if he's the seed of the woman because we're in him, we are also regarded as the seed of the woman. He is the good seed that is sown because he is the word of God. But he also makes it clear that that good seed sown in the field, which is the world, it grows up into wheat. He says that that or those are the sons of the kingdom because whatever he is, if we're in him, that's what we're supposed to be. He is the son of God. And to as many as received him, to them he gave the power, that is the right and the ability to become what? The sons of God. He is the good seed of Abraham in Galatians chapter 3. But if we are his, we are the seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. Once again, whatever he is, if we're in him, that's what we're supposed to be. And so we know that he is the light of the world. And so, if we are in him, what are we to be? The light of the world. And so this principle is throughout the scripture, but I want to focus on, well, I just told you, if you want to understand what's going on now, you have to go back and understand what's already been. He declares the end to us from the beginning. Why do we need to know what's going on today? Why do we need to better understand what's going to happen tomorrow? Well, maybe I should ask this. Do any of you believe with me that we are living in the end days? Okay? It behooves God's people to understand not what the adversary is doing, but what is he doing in the earth in these days. Surely the Lord God does nothing except he first reveal his secret unto his servants, the prophets. And why does the creator want his people to understand his secrets? Because he wants us to know what he is doing in the earth and what we're supposed to be doing in the earth. And ladies and gentlemen, you and I have been called to be a light in the midst of darkness. In Genesis chapter 1, it says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm of the opinion that that verse tells me that he created everything that was necessary for the creation to function according to his design. But in verse 2, it says this, And the earth was without form and void and darkness. The Hebrew term choshech is, is like a darkness that you can feel. Darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And so the evening and the morning were the first day. So what I want to share with you this morning is that this is just, well, it's more than just an historical record. As I said, this whole book from cover to cover is prophetic. There are principles, there are concepts, there are precepts that are found in the very beginning. And one of those is, if you want to understand what's happening today, you have to understand what's already been. 
And in the beginning, before there is a mention of light, guess what's already there upon the earth? Darkness. As a matter of fact, God is the one who created that darkness. He forms the light, Isaiah says in chapter 45, and I create Choshech. I create darkness. And that means this, folks, that darkness serves a purpose. Now, we may have a difficulty at times discerning what that purpose is, but that doesn't mean it doesn't serve its purpose. And when we think of darkness, of course, metaphorically, we think of spiritual darkness. We think of wickedness. We think of evil. And that is true. And when we are going through dark times, when we're going through troubling times, that's when we're least likely, when we're being real human, to discern God. We're asking questions, where are you? Why is this happening? Why are these things happening in our nation? Why are these things happening in the world? But in verse 2, we see that even though there was darkness upon the earth, the Spirit of God was there in that darkness, brooding over the waters, getting ready to do something. So the first thing I want you to see is in the beginning, there was darkness, which means what? That in the end, there's going to be darkness. How many of you believe that it is getting dark in this world? It's a darkness that even can be felt at times. But it's in that situation that the Creator speaks, and He says this, let there be light. And there was light. Now, uh, what I'm about to say, I cannot prove beyond any doubt, because I was not there in the beginning. But I do have a very strong opinion that when God said, let there be light, the light that first appeared, the light of creation, did not appear in some far remote corner of the universe. I am convinced that it appeared right in the midst of the darkness. One of the indicators that that is probably true, at least to me, is, well, if you can imagine in your mind a globe of the earth. Go ahead and do it. Now find the, the nation of Israel on that globe. Where is it? It's in the middle. It's in the midst of the nations. Not in some far remote corner. Now in your mind's eye, zoom in a little closer. Now look at the nation of Israel and then the neighborhood that it's in. It's kind of a rough neighborhood, wouldn't you say? And who picked this spot? He did. What is the cardinal rule of real estate? Location, location, location. And yet the creator of the universe situated his people in the midst of the earth. The western border of Israel is the Mediterranean Sea. Mediterranean is a term that means middle earth. When Jacob blessed Manasseh and Ephraim, he said, let them grow up into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And so what am I trying to point out here? God did not want his people to be a light among those who liked them. He wanted them to be a light in the midst of the darkness. He wanted them to be a light to the nations that hated them, that wanted to persecute them, that would rather see them dead. But God said, I am going to have a people that is going to be a light in the midst of all those things. You see, Messiah said that you are a city set upon a hill which cannot be hidden. 
There's a lot of believers that when the darkness comes, they want to go hide. But we're not supposed to hide. We're supposed to be that beacon that is standing out, not just to those who agree with us, not just to those who like us or who think like us, but especially to those who hate us. When you think of the children of Israel in Egypt, they lived in an area called Goshen, which as I understand it was situated in the midst of Egypt. And one of the things that the Creator did as He was preparing to bring His people out of that situation is the ninth plague was darkness. Darkness so intense that it could be felt, whereby men could not venture out of their homes. However, what we also see in the text is that in Goshen, the Israelites had light in their homes, meaning that in the midst of the darkness, there was that light. David put it this way, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. So there's a principle that we see in the very beginning, ladies and gentlemen. There is going to be darkness. As a matter of fact, that darkness serves a purpose. And I'm going to suggest to you that one of the purposes darkness serves is that when there is light, that darkness accentuates that light. If we were to put a candelabra out here on the highway right now, kindle it, there's lights burning. People are moving up and down the highway, going to wherever they're going. They've got to get to the, you know, wherever they're going to lunch or what have you. A few people might notice it. Don't you think? Don't you also think that most people wouldn't pay it any mind? Too busy, got things going on. But let it get dark. That same light kindled, not different, same light, now it's dark. What's happened? more people notice it. Why? Because the darkness is actually what accentuates the light. But there has to be a light. And there has to be that distinction. And that's why, in part, it says that God, my words, divided. He distinguished the light from the darkness, which now leads us to the second principle I want to discuss with you. In the beginning, throughout the creation account, we see God dividing things. He divides the light from the darkness, the day from the night. He divides the waters above the firmament from the waters below. He divides the seas so that dry land can appear. He, he divides all these things because, you see, when everything was where it was supposed to be and when it was doing what it was designed by the Creator to do, that's when He would say it was good. In English, good describes a meal, a book, a movie, what have you. In Hebrew, the term that is translated good goes beyond that. It is to suggest that it is where it's supposed to be and it's doing what it was designed to do. So you see, when the light was where it was supposed to be, according to his purpose, and it was doing what it was designed to do by him, then it was good. And for the light to serve its purpose, it had to be distinguishable from the darkness. Which then means to you and me that we cannot be a light in the midst of the darkness. We cannot be a light to the nations if we are behaving like the nations. There's a lot of people that ride up and down the highway and they've got this little blue bumper sticker on the back of their car that says coexist. Have you seen it? Our culture today 
says we have to coexist. We have to accept that there are multiple paths that lead to, to God. Well, that presents a little problem for me. Because if, if I really believe that this is the word of God, then the Messiah taught me there's only one way that leads to life. It's a straight gate. It's a narrow, get this, actually troublesome path. It squeezes you. But that is the one and only way that leads to life. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I cannot be a light to the nations if I am acting like the nations. We're called to be a set-apart people. The, the, the Creator put it this way, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch the unclean thing. And I will receive you unto myself, and you will be my sons and daughters, and I shall be as a father unto you. Now, it's not calling us to be set apart so that we are distanced from the nations and the people of the world. No. We are to be a light to the people of the world. We are to, well, let's, let's read what he says over here in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, I know that you're very familiar with this scripture. But he says, Matthew 5, uh, verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. My point is, we are not to coexist with the world. We are to be set apart from the world. Why? So that those who dwell in darkness can see a distinguishable difference between us and between them, so that they will be drawn to that light, so that they too will come out of darkness into his marvelous light. Mankind was created, apparently, with this inherent desire to be, to be drawn to light or things that sparkle and shine and glitter. We're all drawn to that, right? The problem is that throughout history, God's people have often fallen short when it comes to fulfilling that purpose. Couple that with this fact, the adversary, Satan, whatever you'd like to call him, doesn't come wearing a red suit carrying a pitchfork, but he comes posing as an angel of light. Why? Because he knows that men are drawn to what they perceive to be the light. And so you see, if we really want to help the people of this world, then we have to be a set-apart people who are truly being the light of the world so that those who dwell in darkness will be drawn to the true light, what is true, what is pure, what is holy, what is sound. We can't help them by acting like them. Now, here's one other thing I want to share with you. I've got my phone up here just to kind of keep me posted on the time here. In the creation account on the fourth day, God made the sun, he made the moon, and he made the stars. And again, this is not just an historical account. It is that, but it's more than that. God is establishing principles and concepts in the very beginning to teach us about who we're supposed to be, and particularly about the last days. The greater light, the sun, the S-U-N, 
we're told in the creation account, is there to govern the day. But the moon, which is the lesser light, is to govern the night, which is when it's dark. Now, here's what I find fascinating about that. The sun, of course, generates light. The moon does not. It can't generate light. But here's what it's designed to do, to reflect the light of the sun. And so the S-U-N is emblematic of the S-O-N. The moon is emblematic. It's that heavenly body that can't generate its own light, but if it will set its face toward the sun, it will reflect his light upon the earth. And as the moon revolves around the earth in that 28 to 30 day cycle, it has at certain times in that cycle an ability created by God to impact things that are going upon the earth, particularly the tides and the seas. That's important, folks, because throughout Scripture we see that the seas are often used to be uh, representative of the nations. So here's what I'm getting at. When we are called the light of the world, it's not because we generate our own light. We can't. We're incapable of that. But we can commit ourselves to getting our face fixed on Him. To, to put our focus upon the author and the finisher of our faith. To get our face toward him. You know, there's a man that uh, one day, or one evening, I should say, in the midst of a storm, had enough courage and enough confidence and faith to climb out of a boat and walk on water. And as long as he had his eyes on the Messiah, Peter defied the laws, the known laws anyway, of, of nature and gravity and was walking on water. But as soon as he got his eyes on uh, the chemtrails and the black helicopters and the FEMA camps and, and all this other stuff that we like to talk about on Facebook, as soon as he got his eyes on all the things that were swirling around him and that became his focus, he sank. Now thankfully... As soon as he called out, Lord, save me, the Lord was there to save him. But you get my point, I hope. When we have our face and our focus on all these other things swirling around us, the things of the world, ladies and gentlemen, we'll start thinking like the world. But we have to, for the sake of those in the world, we have to set our face on the sun. Because when we set our face on the sun, we can reflect his light. And if he is lifted up, he will draw all men unto him. So my message to you this morning is, to summarize, we are called to be the light of the world. And we are called to be the light of the world in the midst of the darkness. The S-U-N governs the day. But the moon is assigned to shine when? When it's dark. And so I'll leave you with this. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Darkness shall be upon the nations and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise over you and his glory shall be seen upon you and kings will be drawn to the brightness of your rising. When is his glory going to be seen upon us? When darkness is upon the nations. Darkness 
has descended, is descending upon the world even now. And so just as in the beginning, the Creator, I believe in my whole heart, is calling forth a people and saying to them, let there be light. Amen? God bless you.